The Neurodivergent Woman podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hello, this is the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. Hi, I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Libok, and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. Michelle and I met at work and bonded over a shared love of feminism and yoga. We both saw the need to provide a free resource to adult neurodivergent women. And so the Neurodivergent Woman podcast was born. Michelle is neurotypical. And Monique is neurodivergent. And we bring our clinical expertise and lived experience to the topics we explore. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. Today's guest is Jennifer Kemp. Jennifer is a clinical psychologist based in Adelaide, Australia. She is the author of The ACT Workbook for Perfectionism, Build Your Best Imperfect Life Using Powerful Acceptance and Commitment Therapy and Self-Compassion Skills as well as several ebooks, which are linked in our show notes. Monique and Jennifer are currently co-writing a book on neurodivergence and self-compassion, which is due to be released in 2024. In her private practice, Jennifer works with adults using acceptance and commitment therapy and compassion-focused approaches with adults experiencing perfectionism, eating disorders, depression, anxiety, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and chronic illness, as well as many late-diagnosed neurodivergent adults. Jennifer balances this quite imperfectly with writing, presenting, and providing consultations to professionals seeking to deepen their therapeutic practice. So today on the podcast, we welcome Jennifer Kemp uh, to join us in a special episode today talking about perfectionism, a subject dear and close to my heart. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So Jennifer, welcome. Um, We're going to kick off by asking you um, a more broad question first. So tell us, what does neurodivergence mean to you? Yeah, hi, and thanks so much for having me on this podcast. I'm quite a fan. I've been listening for quite a while. Um, Neurodivergence is something for me, it means that my brain works differently to other people. It's got some really great strengths and things that I definitely lean on a lot in my life and some areas where perhaps it's not quite as helpful for me that I have to work around. Um, And I think we all... We all have differences in the way our brains work. Um, And uh, so diversity, I guess, in in every everyone and every brain. But uh, it's sort of there's something I think that's a little bit different when you're neurodivergence that you sort of share those sort of differences with other people. So for me, it's also it also means being part of a community of people as well that have some like similarities to me. 
Yeah, it's funny because um, I was just today finishing off the edit for a previous guest, uh, Adina Levy, who's a speech therapist. Um, and it's so funny that you say that because I was just listening to her say pretty much the exact same thing, that for her, the community element of it has been so amazing and such a huge positive, um, you know, as part of her path to identifying her in neurodivergence. Yeah, it has been for me too. It's a relatively new thing for me and it's really opened up getting to know a bunch of people that when we get together we've never met before we just sort of pick up like we're old friends we sort of but we also seem to think the same way accept each other for like all our little quirks and you can just be completely yourself in that group and I really appreciated getting to know people in that way it's been great. So I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit of your personal journey or path to discovering your own neurodivergence. So when did you first realize you were neurodivergent and what's that path been like for you to understand that aspect of yourself? Oh, I think it's been quite a quite a journey. It started probably only about 18 months ago and I'm like nearly 50 years old. So it took a long time for me for the penny to drop for me, I guess. Um, it started when I was sitting in an assessment for one of my kids trying to work out whether they were autistic or not. And they're sitting there going, um, no, I don't do that. But mum, she does that. And that and that kept like happening all the way through the interview. And I'm sitting there just going, okie dokie, yeah, that, mm, that rings a bell to me too. Mm, I do that as well. I think it was... Um, it's weird now when I think back that it never really occurred to me. So it really, um, I think it threw me quite a lot. There was a few weeks there where I went into quite an internal, like it was partly a spiral. Like I think it brought up a lot of sort of self-blame around, oh, my gosh, you know, all those sort of things, those little things that had happened across your life, like they were your fault actually or that that was something wrong with you in that moment. And I went on, I mean, I felt quite flat for a few weeks. And uh, even while at the same time I'm sort of accepting my child's neurodivergent, I'm sort of going, but hang on, what does that say about me? So it was quite a big adjustment. After a few weeks, I actually said to myself, okay, I need a break from all of this contemplating. I just need to put this to one side for a minute and just focus on what I need to do and and what I, and um just let it just let it go for a second. And that really helped as sort of, I think in hindsight, it was a bit of a self-compassionate act because I was I was just sort of going around and around in loops in my head. And uh so it was really good to put that aside, let it rest, and then I sort of picked it up again a bit later. And then ever since I've still been uh, learning new things about myself every week, probably. So many things, just even like memes people post, you just go, oh my God, that's me. Or TikToks that people, people put up. It's like, oh wow. Okay. Um, yeah, that's, that, that's interesting. Uh, so yeah, I'm still very much on that, that journey. Um, I found out that I was an ADHD later. So I can't remember exactly when. It's probably sort of late last year and I think only until recently have I 
I've still I've still had that kind of imposter thing going into it quite recently where I was going, oh, really an ADHD. I mean, I don't I don't like have trouble finishing things. I don't hand things in late. I've always have had four university qualifications, you know, like surely this isn't me. And then um yeah, it definitely is. I've worked out as well. Doesn't look like you'd expect it to look like, but it's definitely there. And I'm guessing that we're going to get into the meat of this later in the episode today, but there's a little niggling feeling that perfectionism probably had something to do with how, um, you know, some of those things looked on the outside compared to the difference on how they felt on the inside. Oh, absolutely. I've always said I don't really procrastinate uh, because I panic much earlier than most people. So, like, for me, I'm thinking like a month out, shit, I've got to get on with that now, you know, whereas another person might be like the day before having that same experience. So I think because I panic earlier, I put more time into things, it takes me longer, but I, I've, you know, in some of my postgraduate studies, I would handle my assignments in early. Because I just needed to, I'd start, I'd panic so early, I'd have them done and I needed to get them off my desk so I could get on with other things. So I just submit them when I thought they were done. And a great example of the overlay of autism and ADHD as, you know, co-occurring neurotypes and how that can present differently or look differently or feel differently even to just one you know, so just being an ADHD or just being autistic. And, you know, we did that episode on the combined brain, but I think we could do a whole podcast on, you know, the, the experience of the combination brain um, and such a good example of like, well, I panicked really early and just got it done and off my desk. And I think people wouldn't, it wouldn't be something that people would automatically think of as a behavior, a typical behavior of an ADHD. Yeah, probably not um, because I think my autism helps me out there. It helps me out hugely. So it's about, okay, this needs to be done. It needs to be done to a certain standard. It, you need to put structure your time and it, it gives me all of that scaffolding. So I think, you know, up until fairly recently, I was sort of laughing with Monique about this not, not that long ago. Up until recently, I was considered a really organized person. So um, people would comment on it, like, you're so organized. And, and I was. Uh, and I, I think the autism was the, was the key there. But could I pay attention? No, 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 I couldn't pay attention. So it would like, if, you know, I would, I don't know how I got through my lectures. I don't know how I knew, learned anything. Because nowadays, I think half the time I'm sitting there and my brain's just wandered off, you know. As I really work at it. Yeah, I think, Jennifer, you and I went to the Yellow Ladybugs conference together the other week. And um, I remember you saying that it was one of the first times you've been able to really pay attention at a conference. And it was because you were able to like use the fidget toys and stuff like that to be able to concentrate. It was actually quite remarkable. I, I think usually in conferences, I sit there and I, I'm so internally restless and and then everyone laughs and I think, oh, my God, what do they just say? Like I missed the joke or people are commenting on the key point they made and I was going, oh, I didn't hear it. So I don't know what it was. I'm very good um, at getting the gist, though, and 
So I can usually learn just sort of by getting the, the gist of the bits that I do here and joining them together. Um, but yeah, that was that was quite remarkable for me, sitting in a room with a lot of other autistic people and knowing that I had permission to lie down, sit on a beanbag, walk around, um, fidget, wriggle, like play a little game on my phone when I was getting restless. I could do all these sorts of different things just to sort of see. And and I just felt like I absorbed so much from that day. It was really good. It's an interesting comment there about being able to um, respond to your body's needs and your sensory needs while paying attention. And I think this is one of the things that the neurodiversity movement, while yes, absolutely benefiting neurodivergent people, has a flow-on positive effect to the whole rest of the world because science tells us most people can't focus well or engage well sitting stock still for huge amounts of time. Like I remember in uni, um, and granted I was a bit tired because of doing uni, um, but I remember often feeling like I was literally about to fall asleep and really if I was able to respond to my body's needs in that moment, I would have gotten up and how to walk around and then come back and be more engaged and able to continue. But because that wasn't allowed, then I just had to, rather than paying attention, try and do mass problems in my head to keep myself awake um, so that I wouldn't literally fall asleep. I used to pinch my earlobe to stay awake and start lectures. <laughs> <laughs> Can you explain to us what perfectionism is? So how is it different to general anxiety? So perfectionism is often seen as a personality trait and it definitely seems to be something that people uh, have across their life. But I do think large parts of perfectionism is learned, particularly the more the unhelpful elements of perfectionism. So, so broadly speaking, perfectionism is a tendency to set really high standards for yourself and then really strive to achieve them. There's a sort of a helpful element of that, of course, which would be that healthy striving and trying to do well and uh, do a good job. And when I'm working with people on perfectionism, I would never want to change that. Um, in fact, we want to harness the, those positive sides but there's also this kind of dark side or the unhelpful side of perfectionism, and that's usually what we're working is to try and scale that down or bring that back 10% so we can get more of the positive sides of it. And the, the unhelpful sides of perfectionism is, is continuing to raise your standards once you've achieved them, so constantly setting really high standards and then raising them always till they're just out of reach, basically, and being very scared of failing because if you you're trying to achieve these really like these impossible standards um and if you fail uh you feel like a failure in yourself you sort of the way you see yourself is defined by your ability to achieve those standards and and a lot of self criticism falls out of that so, so you, there's this sort of trap that you can end up in where you're continually raising your standards till they're, till they're always the out of reach, um, striving to achieve them, but of course they're impossible to achieve, and then constantly feeling like you're a failure and criticizing yourself because you're not achieving what you think you should 
be able to achieve. So what you'll get in unhelpful perfectionism is a lot of learned patterns of behavior, basically, about trying to avoid mistakes, avoid feeling like you're failing at at all costs. They can be patterns of sort of avoidant patterns, really. They can be quite passive, like just I'm not going to try if I don't think I can do it very well. Um, I'm not going to kind of take that tough option. Or they can be quite active, like I'm going to check and recheck my work over and over again. I'm going to work late. I'm going to make sure that everyone's happy with me all the time. It's a very neurodivergent thing to worry about and make sure that I don't fail in any way. And when I say fail, I mean like, Failure is not just sort of getting a bad grade. It means getting like socially embarrassed, saying the wrong thing, anything where you feel like you haven't met the standard you want to meet. And it's really pervasive. I just see it everywhere and I see it a lot amongst other psychologists. Um, I end up talking a lot to psychologists about their own perfectionism, also in like lots of my clients as well. Yeah, that's a great explanation. And I think from what you said, it sounds like ultimately perfectionism is in the anxiety family. But for people sort of wondering, okay, is it just do I have generalized anxiety or is it a more perfectionistic base? It really sounds like it's this anxiety focused on your sense of self-worth as measured by your ability to achieve this constantly increasing impossible standard. Would you agree with that or have anything to add to that? Yeah, I realized I didn't answer the second part of the question. I would put perfectionism not in an anxiety category, but rather say that anxiety that that perfectionism causes anxiety because you become quite hyper-focused and fearful of making mistakes. So it um, and you're setting standards you can't meet. So you're always fearing that. So it causes anxiety. Working as a clinical psychologist, um, I get get a lot of clients that have been diagnosed with generalized anxiety. And I find it the, one of the most unhelpful diagnoses that it ever existed. I would say, I don't think it's enough just to say this person has generalized anxiety. Now I'm just going to treat the anxiety. I always want to know why. And it's always going to come from something. There's got to be some reason why someone is anxious in that way. So it could be, um, it could be OCD. So a lot of fears around a particular theme and worries around that could be perfectionism, could be trauma. So a lot of sort of hypervigilance that's causing anxiety and it could be neurodivergence as well. That is sort of a lot of social anxiety coming out of that, not feeling really on steady footing in in certain environments or situations or or worry that you're going to make a mistake and people will criticise you again. So I think there's always a reason for that anxiety and perfectionism would be one of the causes of that. Yeah, as you were going through the definition of perfectionism, I could really see how being an ADHDer, being autistic, being neurodivergent, how that would potentially start off perfectionism in somebody and how those things would interact with each other, the perfectionism and the neurodivergence, and really snowball and actually create the perfect storm for somebody's mental health. Yeah, I think they're very closely related. So when I wrote about perfectionism, I wasn't really looking at it through a neurodivergent lens, but as I go back through, I think all of this would apply and be helpful for someone who was neurodivergent as well. 
I, I think perfectionism is very closely related to autism and it's very closely related to OCD as well. As an autistic person, I think um, one of my skills that I lean on a lot is pattern recognition and the ability to like notice when something is like a tiny, tiny bit out of place. Have you ever seen those, those like they, they circulate every now and again? There's like internet tests, like are you a perfectionist and like what is different, this one and this one? And it's like instantly I know exactly which one is different. Like I don't even have to think about it. That one's bigger than that one. Like obviously I can perceive those differences. So I think that can set up an environment for perfectionism because you're actually, first of all, able to notice things that aren't quite right really easily. I think a good test for, this is like a non-clinical test, uh, but for perfectionism are also those YouTube videos where people will um, cut a piece of paper but not on the line or cut a cake but cut it like wonky across the cake and not how you would usually cut the cake and just watching those it's like nails on a chalkboard like it's ooh. <laughs> I think those ones really tap into that other autistic quality of like needing things to be um, consistent and symmetrical I think that need for sort of symmetry and things to be correct is quite common amongst autistic people as well and definitely part of perfectionism too is it's just not quite right. Oh, my goodness, how could you cut that and, like, not down the middle? Like, um, And being able to notice that immediately, that I, that isn't right as well. So tell me, what do you think the overlap is between perfectionism and autism and ADHD? Is it more likely um, and how do the factors specific to these neurotypes interact with perfectionism? I've been thinking about this because I, I think I've, um, I can sense the difference, but I was trying to put it into words before we had this conversation. I do think there's a, there's a really close relationship between perfectionism, autism and OCD. And I think it's those noticing those tiny details, that, that visual perception skill. And that preference for consistency and sameness and, and uh, symmetry and things like that. I think autistic people can feel, I think we have the potential to feel like more uncomfortable if things aren't quite right, doesn't quite meet the rule or expectation or something along those lines as well. And this can be like also like, for example, a lot of people would say oh, it's a terrible thing because you should never say this. I think um, I'm just so OCD because my house has to be exactly this way. I would say that's my, I need everything to be in its place is something that some autistic people, you know, would like or, or at least have that need. I mean, my house is messy, but I would prefer that it was a certain way and that, and I struggle to calm down or feel settled or feel like to sort of feel to be able to soothe myself if everything's sort of mess a mess um and I think all of that overlaps and creates a, like an environment for perfectionism really and there's a form of OCD called just right OCD and if you ever read the diagnostic sort of description of just right OCD you could be describing perfectionism and you could be describing autism really I struggle to see what that is separate to those things actually um that's another controversial world according to Jen um you know opinion here oh um, I agree with you <laughs> <laughs> you got um, my vote <laughs> 
<laughs> I would I think also that there's a really strong link between masking and perfectionism. So if you've had a lifetime of experiences where you are like getting little bits of feedback that perhaps what you said was a bit odd or not right or you upset someone, you don't know why, those sorts of things, and you feel that need, that like that pressure to perform socially uh, in a certain way, like trying to do that well and then feeling very sensitive to doing like feedback that you've done it badly, that sort of rejection sensitivity, I think that's great, sort of also quite perfectionistic the way we mask it, you know, we should be like perfectly socially put together or something along those lines. So I think there's quite a few overlaps there. I struggle a little bit more with the overlap with ADHD. Um, I think I would see ADHD as having more spontaneity than would normally come with perfectionism. Perfectionism is much more around consistency and rules and doing things a certain way. But I I do think that ADHD sort of supercharges your thinking. So if you are worried about making mistakes, then it's going to like inject sort of supercharge and, you know, really speed that up. And it seems to be very closely ADHD, you know, OCD. If you have OCD, um, that ADHD will really like kick, like spin off those think that thinking really fast about whatever it is that you're worried about. Um, and all of them share self-criticism. Um, as I've joked before, you know, you'll never never meet someone with OCD who's trying to do a half-assed job of it. You know, like you, you try and do it well when you're doing so. Like a, I need to like um, do this thing to make myself feel better. I can't do half the thing. I need to do all of the thing, and um, that that and I'm not doing it properly. And there's something wrong with me. And all of that self-criticism is woven into it. It's just so common, unfortunately, amongst neurodivergent people, isn't it? and perfectionists as well. Yeah, I've definitely noticed with ADHD, if people feel like they can't rely on their executive functioning, like their working memory and, you know, they're um, forgetful of appointments or times or information that they need to have on hand, I feel like quite a few people develop perfectionism as sort of a way of coping with it. And they're actually using um, that fight or flight response, that highly anxious response to try to kick their executive function into gear. Yeah, but you can't maintain it forever and eventually people's nervous system does crash um, or they hit ADHD burnout and then, yeah, the perfectionism can't spur on their executive functioning any longer. Yeah, completely agree. And I've seen that in so many adult women in particular who've come for late diagnosis, adult diagnosis or assessment of ADHD. Um, and when we're looking back kind of through their history, quite similar to you, Jen, right? It's like, yes, I people have described me as organized. You know, I've I've always been able to, in inverted commas, manage all of this stuff. Um, and then it's often when there is some sort of extra wall or some extra step up in executive functioning demand, like maybe they've had their first kid or maybe something's happened at work or whatever the case might be. And the anxiety or, or you know, to, to be more accurate, the threat response, right, the stick that's sort of been beating them towards performance is no longer enough. And then they're just standing there being beaten by the stick, essentially. Yeah, the stick definitely hangs around, doesn't it? When you're in a pattern of criticizing yourself for everything, it's uh, 
it's a hard one to to change. Yeah, unless you make, if you don't make a sort of conscious effort to change it, you just end up stuck on that loop of really what can be quite abusive internal dialogue, basically, um, quite destructive. I think what can also be challenging is you can only sort of beat yourself with the stick for so long and be driven by perfectionism for so long. Um, and a lot of people do end up actually crashing after a while of spending their life in fight or flight and they go into burnout and suddenly you can no longer force yourself to keep going and um, be working at the same sort of perfectionistic level, whether it's at home, parenting, at work, um, extra projects, because you just don't have the energy to do that anymore. And then people go, well, but what then? You know, my whole life has been built around these perfectionistic ideals, but I physically can't actually do it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I think you know, I look back, I think I crashed multiple times in that way across my life. And it's it's hard because those those ideals are so worthy. Um, one thing I never do with my clients, although it's so tempting, um, I try never to dispute those standards. I don't like just uh, I think you know standard CBT approach to working with perfectionism would have is doing a lot of like disputation around like whether those standards really are what you you know make sense whether they're logical that kind of stuff and they're not logical so the the sort of standards that you set for yourself as a perfectionist are kind of like OCD obsessions they. They don't follow logical rules. There's always a yes, but you can dispute it. But that if you have OCD, the OCD will always go, you know, yes, but your hands could be dirty. So, you know, and it doesn't matter how much you dispute it. There's always that with perfectionism as well. So it's much more about being able to respond flexibly in the presence of this kind of self-critical thinking um no these sort of standards that you wish you could you know achieve and being compassionate to yourself around okay maybe I can't be perfect maybe I can't be organized all the time um which I'm far from being right now and really there's a fair amount of sort of criticism still happening around that like I can't believe I forgot that again uh, but learning to practice keep coming back to, to taking a more compassionate perspective on yourself when you feel when you do ultimately not meet those standards uh, and over time I think the standards can change you know they they do sort of change to become more realistic but that's I wouldn't start there you know that's sort of a byproduct of working with someone on this really. Yeah, great explanation there. And I think to put that in the the lens of the example you gave about CBT, for instance, it's really, I kind of really see it as rather than directly challenging that thought, the focus isn't on that. That thought can just kind of sit there and do its own thing and live and whatever, right? <laughs> the focus is how can you hold yourself with compassion, you know, appreciate all the things that have caused that thought, what's going on for you internally, what's actually possible for you. So that's that compassionate action. And then as you say, Jen, the thought kind of takes care of itself once we change to that or move into that compassionate mindset. Yeah, certainly I've found working on my own perfectionism that that's one of the, the things that's probably made the biggest difference in the end, 
has been softening around my expectations of myself and that I know I can't meet these expectations. So um, I'd love to be always on top of my email, but nowadays I just really am not. And um, and I'm really honestly really struggling with that. It's one thing to have an auto reply on that says I may take a few days to get back to you, but what about when it's weeks, you know, and then what about when you forget altogether? There's constantly feeling again like my standard for myself isn't being met and, and finding that even recently have that self-criticism is back is frustrating, but also remembering, okay, but it's okay. You know, it really is okay. Can't just can't do everything all the time. On my email, I have I won't respond to this within like five business days. And then I'm thinking of actually adding something else to my email signature, which is if you haven't heard from me in like two weeks, please email me again, because whatever it was that you emailed me about has slipped through my filter, basically. It's just making room for what is realistic, you know, and I think that changes as we go through different phases of life. So I think this leads really nicely into one of our next questions, which is really about unpacking some of the causes, I guess, of perfectionism. And I feel like we've already talked about several things and some of the things that we've covered so far, you know, we've got, um, and these are things that can overlap with neurodivergence as well. So some of those more like visceral processing stuff, like just being more aware of details and being more aware of disruption to pattern, um, that ick sensation that, you know, both Jen, you and Monique talked about, like, oh, that just doesn't feel right. And that's a sensory thing, right? So being more sensitive to that. And then we've got also the rejection sensitive stuff. So, you know, that environmental exposure of like a lifetime of getting negative feedback, whether explicit or implicit or feeling like, okay, I really have to work really hard to meet this standard that I just don't perceive that I'm meeting. And then the other aspect of that is those kind of core belief stuff. Like what's my value in the world? What's my purpose in the world? And do I need to be achieving at this really high level or meeting this standard to be valuable or worthy? And I just wanted to check in with you, Jennifer, a bit of a a twofold question. Firstly, are we missing anything there? Is there any other kind of key contributors that you see a lot? And then secondly, I'd love if we could spend some time unpacking some of that core belief stuff that contributes to perfectionism. Well, certainly there's a lot to our learning history that that influences our perfectionism. My my dad, bless him, when he held a copy of my book in his hands, he said, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, and he, my, my dad and my parents never held perfectionistic standards for me, really. I don't think, I never really felt that, but I certainly, certainly modelled that behaviour at times. And I would see my dad holding himself to very high standards. Some of that would probably backwash to the rest of us as well, I think. But as it does, and I look at my children and feel like I've probably just repeated that process, actually. So I do think your family of origin, the people who've cared for you, your teachers as well, your experience of learning. I've worked with several people who are dyslexic, who who also have very high standards for themselves, having pushed themselves so hard to overcome the challenges they've had at school. 
Oh, and there's cultural differences as well. Last year I did um, quite a bit of work in Singapore online and um, their interest in perfectionism, the feedback they were giving me was that it was um, it's just really cultural. They're having high standards in terms of expectations of school achievement. Kids are doing a lot of extra study out of school. In Singapore, when you get to the end of your school schooling and you get your final grades, if you're going to the public service, you actually get like a score at that point that is kind of like your potential, uh, summarises your potential, and that will define how you progress through the public service. I, yeah, so it's... Um, Sorry, I always forget that this isn't a visual medium. Monique and I are making horrified faces, right? <laughs> yes, I'm like <laughs> responding to these like horrified faces, yeah. yeah. And I've checked this with, again, like since being told that and it's absolutely being confirmed that that, that sort of thing can happen. I've also, there's, there's other cultures in the world that have a similar perspective around the importance of education and getting perfect grades and and you can you can see that played out and a lot of a lot of the questions i get when i run workshops is what do i do with a child who's how do i work with a perfectionistic child whose parents are demanding that sort of perfect performance from them and then and even just one more context i can think of is working with recent immigrants too so the children of, of immigrants and perhaps in singapore there are a lot obviously it's quite a young nation relatively uh, I've worked with, with young people who felt an enormous amount of pressure in terms of their performance because they they appreciate that their parents have sacrificed a lot to immigrate to the country and they really wanted to achieve at a level that they, they feel sort of makes them proud or pays them back or something like that. There's quite a lot of learning. And then one other thing, um, Michelle, you, you I could add, is that, of course, when we do these avoidant things, so when we check our work again, we do do another round of edits, we might we might actually get a higher grade up until a point, right, um, where a lot more effort doesn't really result in a much higher grade, but uh, it's hard to judge where that point is. And uh, so, yeah, if you're checking your work at those extra few times, you both alleviate your own anxiety about making a mistake and that helps you feel better in the short term. And it actually can have can have results that you feel like reward that behaviours. There's a lot of inbuilt rewards for these behaviours culturally, socially and in our workplaces when we're studying all those sorts of environments. It's interesting too because I think, um, and I love that example of, you know, different cultures and and your experience in working with individuals in Singapore. And I think in general, like even in Western culture, we have a huge reliance on external metrics to check our progression and to measure our worth, right? Here's your gold star. And it's funny, you know, you're talking about the high rate of perfectionism in psychologists, and I assume it would be the same in other disciplines where there's a really prolonged period of study. It's very like, you know, you need to achieve this milestone and then do this thing and then do that thing, right? Um, and I've found just amongst psychologist friends of mine that once you exit that system of external metrics, like maybe you've finished a registrar program, maybe you're endorsed, you know, you're, there's no more external checkpoints or gold stars. It can feel a bit stressful 
because it's like, how do I know that I'm doing this thing? And so that's definitely, I think, an example of what you're saying about the cultural influence of, of how we should be measuring ourselves or thinking about ourselves. Oh, absolutely. Amongst um, any program that's competitive, psychology, you start with thousands of people in first year and, and there were 12 places in my master's program, you know, and, and I think it starts... It starts on the day one of your master's program if you're studying psychology because and they they pulled us aside and said, okay, you can stop worrying about your marks now. You don't need to worry about your grades. This is about demonstrating like learning skills and getting feedback. Um, it doesn't matter what your grades are in the master's program. And it's really hard to just turn it off at that point. I did it full time. I had a three and a five-year-old at home. I had I stopped work because I couldn't couldn't work and study at the same time. And so I was very much, I had competing demands and my family came first. So my all the way through my master's, I had sort of an internal mantra of like, I'm just going to do a credit's worth of effort on this assignment and then I'm going to hand it in. What I look back now, there was some pieces missing to that. I, I could have, you know, if I'd known what I know now, might have done a little differently. But I, I remember handing, the handing in was hard. Like, so sort of a white knuckling my way through that experience, just like, just click it and just send it, like that'll do. But the reward, it was immediate. It was like, great, I can close my laptop and I can go and, and play with my kids or, you know, go out and do something. So much so, and I was glad I practiced that um, I, all the way through. Like most master's students, I had therapy while I was doing my master's degree as a mature age student because the pressure in that degree in the clinical master's is intense and incredibly anxiety provoking for a perfectionist because you're always being corrected. And so you always feel like you're making mistakes I remember getting to one point and saying, I got, I, you know, I just cannot handle any more feedback this week. Like just, you know, I've had just enough. I cannot, cannot take this. So it was very anxiety provoking. And then when I got to the end of my master's at the end of the two years, I think only about half of the class actually were able to submit their thesis on time. And I submitted what I thought was going to be my final draft to my supervisor and and was expecting minor changes and he came back and the topic was perfectionism and i he was a perfectionist and the feedback came back saying yes well you know i think it needs a few more rounds of F, of review and at this point it was sort of the last week in november first week in december around then and I was looking down the barrel of like the entire summer holidays with my kids or the entire summer holidays editing this damn document. And I didn't care as long as I passed because then I would get my master's degree and I could get on with my life. But I, you know, when I got that feedback, I burst into tears and I can't do this. Like this is overwhelming. And then I, I let it sit there for a while. And over the next day, I thought, is it good enough to pass? You know, is it good enough for a credit? Yes, it is. And I've been practicing for two years. I did the final changes, like the changes he'd suggested. Um, I tidied it up and I just submitted it uh, for marking. And he, I don't think he was very happy. But, you know, I wasn't aiming to get it to be published in a journal. I just needed to finish my master's degree. And luckily it did pass. Um, and I was able to, yeah, graduate with everyone else. So it took a lot of practice at that sort of credit effort for a credit mark, you know, just like repeated effort. Otherwise, I would never have been able to do that by the end. 
I think that's a fantastic example of thinking about what your underlying values are and what's going to be the most important what is the most important thing to you at that point in your life? You know, you were talking earlier, Jennifer, around um, how there's a good side of perfectionism, right? It makes you strive to kind of do things really well and whatever. And at a certain point in your life, your value might be, no, I really want to do the best that I can on this thing. But we need to be flexible around that. And I think that's such a well-articulated example of thinking, what do I actually care about right now? And how can I engage in the compassionate action of behaving in a way that is in alignment with my values? Yeah, I love that point, Michelle, about your values. When I was going through my master's and afterwards, I had a health breakdown And I actually had to choose between my values around perfectionism and my health. And I chose my health. You know, I wanted to live um, a, a life that I wasn't going to constantly be chronically ill. And I've had to continue making choices to align with those values for the last 10 years. And it's been hard, but I think I really like your point, Jennifer, about practice. Unraveling perfectionism, it's a skill that you actually practice and you it's not easy, but you consciously make that decision and you make the decision to practice that skill, you know, of compassion and thinking about what is it you really want to spend your time and energy on in this life? Because we all have limited time. We all have limited energy. We have limited health and, you know, we do have to make choices about what we want to spend it on. Yeah, that's such a good point. I've been working on this actively for over a decade now, my perfectionism, and I would still say call myself a recovering perfectionist um, and I still keep falling into traps. The thing, the sort of things now, like I often don't even see it until I'm well down the pathway as well. The things that trap me are things where I get very caught in needing, like it's like a new program, for example. I'm writing a whole bunch of new training programs this year and I get very perfectionistic about how they uh, they go, how the flow, the story that I'm telling, but also spend hours like on the images and like getting, uh, I mean, I actually don't care that much about spelling, but I don't want mistakes on there either. So I will just, you know, like be fixing it, tweaking it and trying to create curriculum that's going to help the learner, like really trying to work out what it is they need to learn. I've got um, some pro- two programs coming up that are like seven and a half hours each. They're both new. On one of them, I I reckon by the time I finished, it wouldn't surprise me if I'd spent 80 more hours on this particular presentation, like at least two weeks of my work. It's probably over 100 hours of just trying to work out from scratch. What is it that I want to say and what is it that people need to learn? And, and then get really wound up and anxious before the presentation because and that, that sometimes takes that for me to realise, oh, not again, I'm stuck in this cycle again. Um, and part of that I would never change. Like I like to feel really proud of the work, the programs that I do. Um, I actually really enjoy working on that. I love finding the images that I want to put on there. I enjoy that process. But it, yes, I'm also aiming for this sort of perfect training program, which is probably just that 
that 10% across the line, you know, at times where it just then kind of burns me out. I'm also wondering, how did your own diagnosis of autism and ADHD impact your experience of perfectionism? I think that those two diagnoses definitely despite that initial reaction, opened up a lot more self-compassion for why I find some things hard. I've become more disorganized since I'm so I don't know what that's about. Maybe I just kind of lean in. Maybe I'm just more overwhelmed. I think there's an element of understanding now a little a felt sense of when I'm heading into burnout that um, and how perfectionism can contribute to that. So is that's helpful to sort of go, okay, it doesn't need to be that, you know, it's not that important. And and like and and sort of stop myself spending that extra time at times because it's contributing to burnout. The perfectionism hasn't really changed. I think I've just um, maybe I understand it better. When I look back over my history at the things, you know, I had an eating disorder in my teens and a lot of anxiety that would have been called what's called generalised anxiety in my 20s and a depressive episode in the middle of my 20s and just anxiety was sort of an ongoing problem that wasn't daily but would have like periods of time, you know, that months at a time or, or certain like work environments I was working in I would lead to some burnout and anxiety because I couldn't perform that well. I can see how being autistic actually matches really well with that history as well. I've always sort of linked those things together because I'm uh, as a perfectionist. I didn't really even really realize I was a perfectionist until my early 30s, I think. So, I, you know, must be incredibly unaware, self-aware to not notice some of these things. I kind of knew, but I didn't really realize the impact it was having on me, I think. I think every perfectionist goes, but isn't this normal? Doesn't everyone think this way and have these, you know, standards? My standards aren't that high. Well, they were normal in my family as well. So, yeah, it was normal to to sort of to, to always want to do a good job. And, yeah, absolutely, and all those sort of good th- sides of it. Yeah, it, it's funny. I, I mean, it took until I was I attended a workshop on perfectionism that I went, oh, like that's what this means. And, oh, it links together all these experiences. And I had therapy various times in my life and no one had ever raised it either. So just seemed to be part of who I was, I think. They just saw it as part of my personality but not something that you could change. And I do feel very strongly you can change it can change it by kind of unwinding some of those unhelpful patterns and it's sort of like exposure work essentially to like like I was doing handing my assignments in after doing like credits worth of effort each time it did get a little easier I could have done more to make it easier in hindsight but it it got a bit easier and meant that I could at the end hand something really big in and they're practicing self-compassion as well around that um, taking action even though there is even though you're criticizing yourself learning to sort of soften around the way you speak to yourself there's lots of things you can do and that I've been practicing since that time um still practicing as you said (laughs) still practicing
So Jennifer, would you be able to give us some examples, and you already have kind of all the way through the interview today, but some particular examples of what perfectionism could look like in kids and in teens and in adults, just so that I think it's always easy for, easier for people to identify if there's a concrete example and it's like, oh, that's part of this. Um, and I'd love to yeah, hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so in kids and and younger teens, I'd say you'll see them tearing up their work or redoing it, repeating that work. You might see meltdowns if they make a mistake and a social mistake as well. And kids and younger teens can't really articulate like what's going on there, but um, feeling some kind of like they said something wrong or some did something weird or something like that and getting incredibly like meltdown or shut down in response to that could be an indicator that there's perfectionism there, I'd say. I think, you know, there's a stereotype of perfectionist being or being kind of that type A, you know, A student, high achiever. But I see perfectionism as much in people who withdraw from a lot of doing a lot of things. It's sort of um, like as a kid, I'm not very coordinated, let's just say. So, um, and so I found sport hard and, and difficult and I wouldn't do very well. So I tried everything I could to get out of it and I would hate, you know, athletics day and those kinds of things. I would try not to be doing any of those activities. I hated and still hate netball um, unless it's like a really loose social game and that's fine. The obsession in net, about netball I will never understand. But I would be terrified, like so, like that, that I'd get the ball, I'd make a mistake. So, so you'll see that kind of fear and avoidant behaviour. It might not be around that. It could be about uh, around anything else. If your child plays an instrument, then they might be happy to practice it, but they won't perform because they'll think everyone is judging them. So those kinds of things could indicate like they're setting very high standards for themselves. I mean, sort of those older teens and adults where you're sort of going maybe into further education or the senior school years, you'll see, again, more like checking, formatting, editing, those kinds of things happening, really worrying about grades being like needing a certain grade or a score or needing to get to a certain I don't know, wanting to get into a certain university course or something, being really quite worried about their level of achievement, and a lot of comparison between themselves and other people as well, I think. The, they're, they're doing better than me, kind of like constantly comparing. You'll also see people um, having difficulty finishing things and handing them in at all um, because it's not quite right, hasn't quite, hasn't quite, it's not good enough. Uh, so lots of perfectionistic senior school kids can can do the work but can't hand in the work. So um, that can be a real sticking point. And then you'll get again in adulthood that sort of like complete avoidance. I, I won't do that thing, that whole category of things. In adults, you'll get people doing the same sort of thing. I've worked, I worked once with sort of a junior lawyer who was really working incredibly long hours and in doing in those hours because and and in other professions as well doing these long hours at work uh because they're terrified of like making mistakes in so in in their contracts so they'd check and recheck the contracts that had to arrive or they were doing building like 
drawings and they had to sort of check and recheck the calculations. Um, so it ends up taking a, a lot longer to do the same amount of work or even starting to fall behind because of that. And yet working 10 hours a day, but still falling behind. So, and some of that can come from the work context too. Yeah. So if you work in a legal firm and they're saying you can't make any mistakes in these contracts because that will mean that this whole, you know, all these terrible, disastrous things will happen. Um, then you're going to, that, that's only going to amplify that, that problem and, and create potentially perfectionism or perfectionistic patterns at least where, and where they might not have even been there before. Yeah, that's a great point about the work environment exacerbating or creating those tendencies. And I think there are a bunch of particular professions and work environments that, you know, it's it's so funny, exactly as you described. It's like even people who maybe naturally aren't super perfectionistic, um, it really instills in you that value that you have to be. It's so important that you, you know, behave in this way. There's a lot of uh, professions out there. You can sort of think of medicine and medical-related professions. If you're working as a radiographer, for example, and you're examining x-rays and, like, what if you miss something? And so that pressure to be, like, always paying 100% attention all the time to never make a mistake, uh, yeah, it's pretty huge, actually, yeah. So what are your top strategies for our neurodivergent listeners dealing with perfectionism? I think I think many of the things that you guys have we've already been talking about, I think. So the first thing is to notice, I think, where you're getting stuck. Um, notice the unhelpful patterns that are developing and where they're causing you bigger problems in your life. It's, I mean, it's appropriate to check and recheck a document if they're financial papers that you're sending to the board but if it's an email that you're sending to a colleague does it really matter if it's grammatically correct they'll get the gist so I think checking the appropriateness of that those sort of patterns in yourself is really important and looking to see whether it has is having a negative impact on your life are you spending way too long writing and rewriting this email you should probably just be getting chat gbt to write it for you now right anyway but um so whatever it is like noticing those those problems that that it's causing you in your life and taking a bit of stock of that probably the other sort of area is like learning to deal with the self criticism in a different way yeah like noticing that you have these self-critical thoughts my favorite metaphor for for working with self-criticism is the passengers on the bus so the passengers on the bus it goes roughly like this so imagine that you are the driver of a bus um it's your bus and only you can drive it uh you've been driving it your whole life and you're trying to drive down the road towards a life that is rich and meaningful for you you know full of important connections with people uh, valued work that's maybe making a difference, you're helping other people, uh, you have a sense of achievement and autonomy. Like it doesn't, doesn't really matter exactly what you're doing. You're kind of living those values. So like, what you do might change over time, but it feels like your life down the road has purpose, has meaning. You're trying to drive down this road, but on 
the bus on your bus with you are a bunch of passengers. They got on at some point. One of those passengers is your perfectionistic sort of self-critic, really. You might have other passengers that are like lovely to chat to. They tell you about the old times, but this particular passenger is one that it comes like right up to the front of the bus and leans in and it says, you're never going to get that right. You're just hopeless at this. You may as well give up. Um, And it critiques you. It's always watching everything you do, looking for any mistake you might make, you've made or could potentially make at some point. And it's just this ongoing destructive self-criticism. You've been driving with so long with this passenger that you've got probably quite used to it. And there's three different ways people respond to their passengers, generally speaking. So, The first and possibly most common that I see is that um, you're sitting there in the driver's seat and the passenger comes up and is talking to you and uh, whatever it says, you just believe it. So when it says you're no good at this, you you should be doing better than this, um, you just believe it. And when you're believing what your passenger is saying, you know how much progress is your bus making down the road? Because it's saying things like, you can't do that. Um, you'll never be good at that. Um, so how, how are you supposed to be making progress towards this meaningful life? Oftentimes when I talk to people about this, they tell me that their bus is like pulled off the road, it's in a ditch, it's going backwards. You know, there's a, a real sense of like just not making any progress. Um, the second way people tend to respond to their passenger is they they uh, get into a fight with it. They argue with it. But in order to fight with it and, like, try and defeat it with logic, the first thing you need to do is take your hands off the wheel and, like, turn and face the passenger and actually fight with this passenger. I think CBT sometimes turns into that. So um, where you're sort of taught to dispute your thoughts and it can sort of evolve into this constant, no, I can do this. Like, no, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. And it just can, it is sort of ongoing. And again, the passenger doesn't have logic, doesn't need to follow logical rules. You can win a few points, but you never win the match. You know what I mean? The third way I come across is people uh, that people respond to their passengers is they try and white knuckle their way down the road. They're like gripping the wheel so tight that their knuckles are white and one hand's gripping the wheel. The other hand's like just trying to push that passenger away going um, like, just shut up, leave me alone. Like I'm going to do this anyway. doesn't matter what you say. Um, and you make progress down the road with that, but it's exhausting, completely exhausting trying to both, keep that passenger quiet while sort of making progress down the road. So you you end up like like doing all the things that you're supposed to be doing. You know, why aren't I happy? I'm going to the going to work and I'm doing a good job and I'm going to the gym and I'm seeing my friends and I'm forcing myself into all these situations where I feel really uncomfortable because I feel like that's what I have to do. And it's a really exhausting way of living. So mostly I find my clients are doing one or more of those. You could be doing all three different times. 
Um, and what we work on in therapy is helping people to like learn a different way, learn how to drive differently. It's driving in a way where you're not trying to just get that passenger to be quiet. That passenger can just come along for the ride. So you're sort of, you're holding the wheel, you're looking at the road, and the passenger inevitably will come by and say, what do you think you're doing? You can't do that. You're hopeless. Whatever it has to say. And instead of believing it, instead of doing what it says or getting into a fight with it, you keep your hands on the wheel, you keep your eyes on the road, you might just look at the passenger briefly and go, it's all right, I've got this, and keep driving. And it's those skills that I think you need to, like, that, that are helpful to learn. There depends what type of therapy you use. We would call it like um, mindful acceptance, mindful awareness. You're aware of the passenger being there, um, but you're still taking action. You're still doing what's important to you and moving yourself towards the things that are important to you in your life, towards that sort of sparkly future. I always in my mind sort of visualise it as like the Wizard of Oz, you know, you've sort of got Oz is down, down the road just kind of sparkling, that kind of sparkling kind of life. And there's only um, one way of getting down that road and that's just to, to keep doing these little things that are aligned with what's important to you. Are and then they they add up over time those things so it's easy to say but it's hard to do and as I said it's like constant as Monique was saying like constant practice you sort of keep coming back to it you get off track you have to keep pulling yourself back on the road Kelly Wilson sort of says uh, something like um we're all, we're all living a lifetime of gentle returns and we're all constantly just getting off track and constantly needing to bring ourselves back on track. We can do that in a way that's nasty and critical and mean, or we can do it kind of more like you are trying to coax a kitten into the house, you know, like, no, 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 over there, over there, just gone, on you go, you know. We can talk to ourselves like you, like you would a little toddler. It's like, come on, off we go. Like just be gentle and kind and playful because humans are inevitably um, and us ADHD is perhaps even more so attracted to other sparkly things and getting distracted and doing things that aren't really important to us. So just coming back to like what's really important to me um, and it doesn't matter what my critic is saying, I'm, I'm, you can stay there, you can keep, um, you can, you're not getting off the bus so you may as well just sit around and I'm going to do this thing anyway. even if the passenger itself can be really quite mean. It actually is part of you. It may have been learned from someone in your life, but it's now the way you're speaking to yourself. And as part of you, I think it has a good intention. It's, it's trying to do usually, honestly, one of two things. This is what I found of us, like, hundreds of people this question and it always seems to come in one of two categories it's trying to keep you safe so safe from being rejected safe from embarrassment safe from feelings of shame of making a mistake so it's trying to protect you yeah it's having any of those kinds of experiences and it's trying to help you do well it's trying to in a way motivate you to do better 
And um, it's funny because, you know, its way of motivating is actually not all that effective. We don't actually perform better when we're told off, really. We do perform better when someone says, hey, you know, have you thought of doing it this way? And like more of a, a gentle, encouraging, likable way. So I think that can really help you when you're trying to drive down the road. And that pa- these passengers, they don't get off the bus. They have been learned. They cannot be unlearned. You can only really go one way in this in learning so you can learn new behaviors um, but those old ones will still be lurking there and this old way of speaking will still be there so making friends with that passenger even if it is you know a bit of a jerk it's got a good intention behind that can be really helpful just just sort of to diffuse that fight that you're in I find that for a lot of people when they're first working with that inner critic or that inner perfectionistic part of themselves, it appears really big and strong and mean and like a um, a big authority figure for them, an internal authority. And then as you are able to get more perspective on it, you one way to look at it and how I see my inner critic or inner perfectionist is kind of like an interfering unhelpful friend um, that thinks that they're giving you good advice but actually they don't know what they're really talking about they might be kind of actually well-meaning but just come across in a really terrible unhelpful way so just a good sort of reframe and taking it from that really scary like mean authority to something less threatening I guess yeah and you know kind of means well but doesn't really understand psychology um (laughs) yeah oh my god Monique that is such a fantastic relatable experience (laughs) I love I love that reframe because exactly as you say Jennifer it it, it's really about not demonizing or you know giving undue power to that part it's just a part of you that's trying its best that's trying to help that's trying to make a difference and then It's then about kind of stepping in and saying, babe, I hear you. Thanks so much for that advice. Um, If you just want to take a seat, um, I'm I'm just going to keep driving the bus. (laughs) We're not yelling. We're not mean. We're just like quietly directing them back to their seat. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. It's beautiful. You can extend it in so many different ways. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for your opinion, uh, but uh, bye-bye. Like, <laughs> it's going to keep driving. Yep. <laughs> so, Jennifer, can you share with us your current special interests or hyperfixations and are any of them about perfectionism? I think um, perfectionism has been a long-term spin of mine, um, something that I've been very interested in, and it still is. Uh, I really enjoy still talking and working in that space. But since discovering that I'm autistic and an ADHD, that's definitely sort of much more front of mind just at the moment. Um, so I'm doing I'm spending time on both, I guess you'd say, my current special interest is the same as my always special interest, which is psychology and how humans work. Uh, this has just given me the next 
thing to to get fascinated about and to read about like massive bookshelves of books that I've barely read but that reflect all my different interests related to that over the years my other current hyperfixation is just re-watching favorite tv shows and I've gone on a bit of a I'm going to the UK later this year I've gone on a bit of a sort of British tv Jane Austen period drama kind of binge for the last month and a half, um, re-watching some of the same shows that I've always watched. They're soothing because they always have like a happy ending. And so it's sort of like a like little ritual, like pulling out. Every time I'm sick, I watch Pride and Prejudice again as it is. That's where it started. And you know, it's the most, I see Monique reacting to that. Oh my God, me too. It's my sickness movie. It's so good. Especially the one with Colin Firth. That's my favorite. Oh. I've actually come to grow to love the 2005 movie, actually, equally, if not maybe even more. I think the ending's really sweet. It's interesting because it's actually the most um, watched and loved of all of her books and movies. So that one, yeah, we're not alone, Monique, I think, in that. Yeah, so that that's where it started and then it's just kept going for the moment. That's just my thing right now. I don't know. I used to love uh, watching those movies, reading the books and really wishing I could just walk around in that period of clothing. I like have a little bonnet and gloves. Yep, and, yep. all yeah, the Regency be- clothing looks amazing. Oh, amazing, amazing. So thanks so much, Jennifer, for coming on today and giving us your time. Um, I think this is a really incredibly important topic, particularly for this population, because as you said, I think it's something that lots of neurodivergent folk struggle with. It's really nice to have a name to an experience and have some sort of actionable strategies around how we can manage that. So thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you. It's been awesome. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us further, you can do so by subscribing to our Patreon. To become part of our Patreon community, you can buy us a coffee for $5 per month or a wine for $10 per month. All of our Patreon subscribers receive access to a backlog of exclusive content and to a monthly live Zoom hangout with us and our Patreon community. Our Zoom hangouts are a place to ask questions, chat about your experiences, and connect with other neurodivergent women. From this season onward, all Patreons will also receive basic episode transcripts released each week after our episode airs. Patreons shouting us to a monthly wine get all that plus one exclusive content post per month. We really appreciate your support as we aim to make quality mental health information accessible to everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the handle The Neurodivergent Woman Podcast or our website, ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.